Uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of James, James chapter 5. <clears throat> and um, we're actually also going to take a look at Romans chapter 12. So if you want to grab uh, that chapter as well. Um, I want to continue talking a little bit about what we were discussing last week um, in regards to this Christian warfare. Now, primarily what we've been talking about is that war within, um, you know, that battle and that conflict. And as I've made the statement, um, and many others have made the statement before, uh, it, it basically comes down to this, is that uh, we will never win the battle that is, you know, if you will, in this world and without if we cannot get uh, that battle and get victory within us. Uh, we have to get an understanding that that fight and that conflict, the first battlefield where it starts is in our heart and in our mind. And, uh, you know, obviously Paul talks about that in the book of Romans, and we've gone through some of this, and we've been talking about various different things and talking about the equipped saint, and we didn't go into great detail about all the pieces and elements of the armor of God, but showed some important areas specifically regarding uh, what is in the hands of that individual, and that is obviously the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith, and then also in the attitude and the morale of it with prayer. But here we are talking a little bit more about this issue of reinforcements. Um, and again, I, I will make it very clear here that God does not intend any Christian to be alone in this fight. Now, there may be times with which we are alone and we may seem like we don't have anybody else to rely on, but that's generally where our thoughts start to derail. You go over there and uh, and uh, uh, poor Elijah, he, he gets to a point of where he thinks that he's the only one that is actually doing anything for God. And God has to, to let him know and say, no, I got 7,000 others that have not bent their knee to Baal. And then there was a great encouragement to, to Elijah to understand that concept. But here we are as Christians, and we've got to understand that if we are having a battle and a conflict within us, there has to be some help that, that, that we need. And as I've said, a person that refuses to ask help in their Christian life with these things is generally an issue, has an issue of pride or has an issue of, of their ego that they, they, they don't want to get bruised or they're afraid somebody's going to have a different perception of them. And, and we, we, we talked about that and, um, you know, as an example, we were talking about uh, the young Christian lady and this is a case study that actually did happen that, uh, uh, she she kind of got out of the will of God, and she started going down a direction. She got herself pregnant out of wedlock, and then was faced with a decision. While her friends and the the the, the father of the child were pushing for an abortion, she had a hard time beginning to sit there and think and understand the concept that hey, I'm actually contemplating murder here. I'm contemplating, you know, uh, aborting this child, terminating its life, killing it, and, and and she was shocked by it, the fact that she was even entertaining that. 
Well, when she finally realized she needed to do something, she came to her parents. They went to uh, the pastor. The pastor started talking about those things. And, and again, to refresh her memory, the, the parents said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and kind of send her away for a little bit and, and people won't know. And then, you know, the baby will, will be born and put her up for adopt or put it up for adoption. And, uh, and then, you know, th- then she doesn't have to worry about the shame. And the, the pastor said, that's the wrong thing to do. That's the wrong thing to do. He said, the right thing to do is to, 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 to just let it be known in the church and to allow the brothers and sisters in Christ to help during this time. And we have this mentality that we think that when we're going through something and to avoid shame and to avoid, if you will, that, that, uh, uh, thought of guilt, we, we, we try to, you know, hide everything. We try to do away with it. We try to keep it, if you will, somewhat secluded from everyone else. But if we look at James chapter 5 and we see here uh, what's going on <coughs> in verse 13, he says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any among you, or excuse me, is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer, uh, uh, and the prayer of the faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise them up and he has committed sins and they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So what we see here is we see that in the book of James, God's talking about other people being involved in our lives. I mean, look, we're in the United States of America, and the right to privacy is one of those things that we just, we're like, we're adamant about, right? Nobody has any business knowing anything about my life and what's going on. Well, then you know what we're missing out? We're missing out on the opportunity to receive edification. We're missing out on on an opportunity to have somebody help us. We're missing out on watching the, the hand of God work in somebody's life that works in ours and seeing a drastic and dramatic change occur. And this is, this is the concept. If you go over to Romans chapter 12, <clears throat> in Romans chapter 12, if you will, this call for help that we were talking about last week in Romans chapter 12, uh, and, and it says here in uh, verse 10, it says, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honoring, preferring one another. Now this is a, this is a verse that is absolutely jam-packed with a lot of doctrine. But it's a simple doctrine to look at. I mean, if you take a look at this here in this verse, here he is, again, he's talking about the transformed mind. We have to change the way we think. The world has a different way that the world thinks. The world responds in different ways. The world responds in sinful ways. We as Christians should not. If we identify areas where we respond in a sinful way, maybe in a way that we were, you know, that we used to live, then we need to change. We need to glorify God. 
And here in this part of this process of how to go about doing that, he says, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Now, if you think about this, he talks about kindly affectioned. Kindly affectioned. There is a, there's a root word that's there of affect. There should be some sort of impression that is given that's there. You know what? I should allow you individuals to affect my life in that way, and it should be done in a way that exercises exactly what he's talking about here with kindness and more, more importantly, with this brotherly love, this compassion, this care, this charity that's there. And I have to do the same. This is, this is something that we as Christians have to grab a hold on. And it says they're in honor preferring one another. He even goes further to clarify how this thought process works. That means I have to put others in my thought process before myself. Now that is anti-world. That's anti-pride. Why? Because then that means that I'm going to be putting myself before somebody else's needs. Is what the world thinks. But God says, no, I want you to think the other way. I want you to think about how, how, how in the world you're going to help them. How you're going to help them in Christ. I want you to put that over and above what you think you need. Look, if I was to take a poll right now and I was to ask everybody here, do you trust Jesus Christ? And I'm pretty certain most everybody here would say yes. So if we trust Jesus Christ, then we should allow that trust to become our confidence in him and that he will handle the situations that we have in our life, but he has put us as tools to help someone else, to not be a stumbling block, but to be somebody that cares, encourages, and edifies. And people always talk about, well, what's wrong with the church today? And that gets to be a bit of an old cliche saying, because, you know, what's wrong with the church today is, well, we've forgotten our first love. Let's just be honest with it. We've left the things of Christ. We left the things of God behind. We've allowed humanism and progressivism and the world to creep in and it just, you know, there's some of the problems with it. But as part of that, as part of the issue, why we see a lot of people struggle in the Christian life is because there is no, if you will, actuation of this verse 10. Nobody acts upon it. Nobody does anything with it. It's read, it's heard, but there's no doing. There's no doing. So when we begin to realize what God's talking about when it comes to this help, we as Christians have to realize and we have to be cognizant that when somebody else is going through a difficult time, somebody else is going through a trial, we're there too. We're there to help. We're not, we don't just sit there and go, oh man, I'm so sorry, too bad, so sad, see you later. 
Every single last one of us should be, have, uh, should have enough, if you will, confidence in the word of God to come alongside and try to help that person or bring that person to someone that can help them. This becomes the concept of what, what, what we're talking about here with reinforcements. Because again, you know, we kind of answered that question. Look, the battle that we go through in this day-to-day life, it's not yours. <clears throat> we lay claim to, the, the, to, to things that belong to God all the time. You know, uh, th- th- there's a lot that can be said about uh, that question that's asked in Malachi when when Israel is uh, uh, confronted with the rebuke of where God says, you've robbed me. And they say, wherein have we robbed you? And of course, he goes into the tithes and the offerings and things of that nature. But the, the fact is, is he was getting at the point that they robbed God because they were unwilling to give. Giving of ourselves and who we are is a trait and a characteristic of God. Does it not say in John 3.16 that God gave? That is the first part. We start start talking about love. What is it we, we look at? We look at the form of giving that's there. Somebody starts talking about, you know, they're interested in another person or something of that nature. And, and we, we, we exercise caution and we say, don't give your heart away just yet. Well, first and foremost, you should be never giving your heart to your spouse. It's not yours to give and it doesn't belong to him or her. Who does it belong to? God. Does it not say, give me thine heart? Does he not say, love the Lord thy God with all thine heart? The problem is, is we give our heart to something else. You have our heart to someone else. Or we keep our heart to ourselves. But hearts is God's. So in the same vein, I want us to think about this when we start thinking about very clearly the battle. We go through difficult times, we go through trials, we go through troubles, and sometimes we think that the battle is our battle to fight. But it's not. Who Whose battle was it in the book of Job? Was it, was it Job's? No. Who picked a fight with God? Lucifer. So whose fight was it? God's. Whose battle is it? God's. We start laying claim to it and say, well, it's my battle. It's my battle. It's my battle. We get into a mentality where we pigeonhole ourselves and we start thinking that we're Rambo and we're going to be the ones that solve the whole problem. And I'll, I'll say this. There is no Christian Rambo. There is no Rambo in any military. Okay. We get this mentality that, that you know that, that that one man can carry an entire army, one man can carry an entire nation. That's not the case. That's not the case at all. It's a group. 
It's a unit. It's a squad. It's a platoon. It's a brigade. It's, it, 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 it's an army of people. It's not just one. Turn over to the book of Galatians. In uh, Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And I read this last last week, and I want to make sure we read it again. And says in verse 1, Galatians 6, 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So he gives us exactly what we're supposed to be doing. What do we do? We restore such a one. We restore. Our job is to restore. We're fixer-uppers. <laughs> Some people need a little more renovation than others. <laughs> Some, you wonder if you need to tear it all down and start all over. But, again, the fact is, is that what would we do? We restore. We restore. And he says here in verse 2, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're supposed to help someone else. We're supposed to help someone else. But I like verse 3. You know, the Bible says that it's a, it says it's a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways, right? And sometimes you look at verses and you realize that they kind of have, if you will, a dualistic meaning behind them. And in verse 3 it says, For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. So we look at that and we go, well, obviously that's talking about that we should be there to help someone else and we need to make sure we don't fall into the same temptation. Absolutely, yes. But also at the same time, we need to make sure that we can get, we're capable of receiving the help. Somebody thinks themselves to be something when they're not, they deceive themselves. I'm spiritual enough I'm grown up enough, I'm mature enough, I can handle this on my own. You know what usually happens right after that? Defeat. Whereas a Christian that comes alongside and says, hey, I need some help, I need some Somebody to come and help restore me here. I need some some assistance. You, I need some spiritual guidance. I need some spiritual counsel. I need some prayer in my life. I need I need I need help. And then a group of believers get together and begin to pray, and they begin to look to the scriptures for the answers together, and they learn together, and they teach. And they demonstrate and they show, you know what begins to happen is victory becomes, if you will, the, the inevitable outcome. Because that's the way that God has made the body of Christ, the church, to operate. Our body provides care for the other parts of the body. It's important to have nutrition in us. But you know what? It takes more than just the stomach to do the work. Bypassing the whole idea of how digestion of, you know, uh, uh, of substances work 
in order to get it into that area, there's other things that have to happen. There's preparation. There's preparing the food. Okay, so you, there's also the handing of money for the food at Taco Bell, if you will, right? All of those things, and it brings the hand, it brings it to the mouth so that the mouth will eat it. It's very, very, it's considered almost in all cultures rude to just put your face in a plate of food and just eat it like a dog. Most cultures don't do that. Now, some may bring it up and eat from here. Some may do the old-fashioned way and, you know, like this and so on and so forth. But regardless, there's the operation of hands there. You don't just see somebody going, oh, it's time to eat, and whack, right down in the trough they go. Now, if that's the way you eat at home, you might want to reconsider (laughs) But you understand what I'm saying is, is there's an operation that goes on to help sustain the body. The same thing is true when we look at these verses and look at what God's talking about. So again, when it's his fight, he's going to provide to you individuals that are going to help you with that mission, that are going to help you in that endeavor. As I said, you know, the unwillingness to seek uh, help and and, and uh, to uh, accept help is is a common factor in uh, defeated believers. It's a it's a common factor. People fall because they don't ask for help. You know, he talks about restoring one, he's talking about faults, he's talking about all of these things here uh, that happen and occur. Um, l- let's think about this for a second. You have somebody that has just injured their knee. They, they can't necessarily put weight on their knee. So they need help, don't they? Because if they don't have the help, they're going to fall. So yes, there's crutches, there's walkers that are provided and things of that nature. But, you know, you can't always use those. So what happens is somebody comes alongside and they use their arms and their shoulders or maybe another, you know, two people come alongside and what do they do? They help that one and lift them up to help them from falling. That's the, I mean, that's a physical thing that we see in the world that is, if you will, part of a healthcare operation. And we realize the same thing is true from a spiritual perspective. From a spiritual perspective. <clears throat> there was a, 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 an individual that was talking about, and he used a sermon illustration talking about, uh, asking for help. And, uh, you know, when you realize that it's going to be a little more difficult. And he used this analogy, and he said, I want you to imagine here's somebody walking along, and they're walking along, and they come to an area where there's quicksand. And they put their foot in the quicksand, and it sinks down. Now, generally, at that point in time, that person is going to look at that and go, okay, I'm going to try to pull my foot out. 
Well, they pull the, try to pull the foot and they realize that there's a reason why they call these things that type of sand and, and it starts pulling them back down. The harder they struggle, the more it pulls them down. And let's say by, by now they've, they've tried it themselves and they've futilely tried it and they're up to their knees in the quicksand. Now at that point in time would be the opportune time to start asking for help, right? When you're at your waist level, you definitely need to make sure that you're asking for help. When it's up to your chest, you really need help. But as this, as this uh, uh, um, individual said, sometimes the only thing that we get to grab on because they've, they've floundered and they've tried themselves and the only thing that we ever get to grab on is maybe we get to grab a hold of an ear. To pull that person out. Now I want us to think about that in a spiritual analogy. I want us to think about that in a spiritual uh, concept. When all we've got to offer somebody for the help is an ear, do we really think that the rescue operation is going to be that comfortable? Do we think that it's going to be much more of a fight? Do we think that there's going to be possibly, possibly defeat? But when we realize that we're already on dangerous grounds, and we're an area that we shouldn't be, and we're stuck in the mire, and we're stuck in the pit, and we seek Jesus Christ, and we say, Lord, save me, And then he comes along and he says, I will save you. And he gives somebody to come and help them out. That's a biblical concept. Book of Judges. What happens? They go into bondage. They lift up their cry unto the Lord. The Lord hears them. And what happens? God sends somebody. He sends Ehud's. Deborah's, Barak's, Jael's, uh, Gideon's, Samson's. He sends individual to help. He sends them for the purpose of pulling them out of that. So when we begin to realize that, that we as Christians have obligations in this regards, we have to realize that, that it really involves a love and a care and compassion. He says over there in Romans chapter 10, we talk about that brotherly love, kindly affection. Turn over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3, I want you to take a look at, uh, oh, let's take a look at verse... Uh, I'll start looking at, look at verse 12 here. It says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. He says, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. How many of us have read through the book of Hebrews? So we've probably read that verse, right? 
Did you ever think about the impact of that verse? Did you ever just sit there and, if you will, meditate and ponder it? If you will, wonder about it. But exhort one another daily. A commandment that is given to us by God that we are to exhort each other. And we always take time for ourselves during the day. But we need to be taking times for others. Do we exhort daily? I tell you, if, 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 if we can get a hold of the concept of exhorting one another daily, then we will begin to have people that will have a strong, firm foundation in Christ and grow, if you will, at exponential rates. They'll be able to handle the conflicts that come. And when temptation is knocking on our door, when afflictions and trials come, then they will be able to say, well, I know specifically that I am not alone in this. I have Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. I am part of his body. And as part of his body, God is going to help me with others that are here. And then the phone rings and there's a Christian on the other end of the phone that says, Hey, brother. Hey, sister. I want you to know I'm praying for you. Is there something I can pray for you today? Hey, I want you to understand that that, that I want to exhort you. They're not here, so I can talk about them behind their back. Um, so <clears throat> when we uh, fell ill with uh, some COVID back in April, there was a couple in this church that called up and they, he texted and he said, hey, how you feeling? I'm like, ah, we're hanging in there. And he's like, want me to bring you over some coffee? I have coffee at home. But this this guy makes a mean cup of coffee, all right? It's pretty good lattes, all right? And I said, sure. He's like, what do you want? And I said, well, you know, I'm I'm not too picky. And he's like, you want this, you want that? And I said, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he came over and he had a little Tupperware container. And it was wrapped with towels so it would hold them and keep them all warm. Knocks on the door and just hands it to us, and you know, again, keeping distance, hands it to us, and, and you know what? That's exhortation. That's encouragement. Maybe something a little physical like that. You're like, well, that's not necessarily spiritual. You know, it was because it was a spiritual connection. It was a brother and sister in Christ. Take a look at chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 10. And he says here in verse 24, and he says, let us consider one another. Let us consider one another 
to provoke unto love and to good works. And we're pretty good at provoking people, aren't we? You know, there, there are a few people in life that you know that their whole purpose in life is provocation. And you look at that person and you go, man. But I tell you this. Sometimes we, 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 we look at it and we, and we kind of snicker, we kind of laugh because we know that the provocation isn't always bringing out the best in us, right? You know, <clears throat> my, my mom used to call me that. She'd call me a little snit. You're like, well, that's not a kind thing to say to a child. It was a term of endearment. I accepted it because I was. I readily recognized that I was a little snit. You know, I, I would say things, I would do things, and it would cause some provocation. Just a little, you know, just would do that. And, and it was just kind of a family joke, and uh, I, I, you know, you got to be careful with those, okay, though? I just want to make sure. you got to be careful with that. Not everybody receives it the same way. So make sure you're not destroying a person when you think it's funny. You got to be careful. But I realized that, you know, some of the stuff that I would do towards my brother was provocation. And it wasn't necessarily the good provocation. Provoked to fights, provoked to an angry statement, provoked to whatever else it was. But here, there's a provocation that everybody's supposed to have. And if we were to sit down and examine ourselves in light of the Word of God and ask the question, have I provoked somebody to love? And do we even really know how to do that? Do we know how to provoke somebody to good works? And no, it's not, it's not, it's not nagging, by the way. Okay? Nagging is just nagging. But what we see here is he's talking about a provocation, which is that pushing, which is that encouragement, which is, if you will, something that, 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 that stimulates a certain response. That's what provocation is. I mean, I could pro- uh, provoke people here by just going on and, and, and disparaging maybe a certain line of cars. I could, I could sit here and I could say, you know what? All gasoline powered vehicles are stupid. All diesel vehicles are stupid. You all need to get electric vehicles. That would be provoking, wouldn't it? Because some of you'd be like, what are you, you know, one of those environmentalists? Nope. I'm trying to support my coal power plant. No, look, I would never tell anybody that, okay? That's everybody's own decision. That That is an opinion. That is something. But if I say that in such a way that, that, I've provoked somebody. And I have now stimulated a reaction of how they're going to respond to the situation. 
Now, we always have choices of how we respond, but sometimes there are things that stimulate us into the right response and some things that stimulate us into the wrong response. Have you ever had somebody say something to you that the very first reaction that you did was as you were standing there, you heard it, and you noticed that all of a sudden your right hand started to do this? Maybe you had to do one of those ones where you're just like, I got it. You start backing up because you realize that if you close the gap, (laughs) it's not going to end well. You remove yourself from the situation. That was a provocation. It produced a response. People do that today to produce a response. But my question is, do we do things within the body of Christ for brothers and sisters? Do we do it in such a way that he says to provoke them unto love? That the response that they give is love. Godly love. And also good works. That they go out there and they do something unto the Lord. Let's keep in mind, good works, as we're seeing here, is talking about doing things in the will of God according to his standard of righteousness. And this is exactly what we should be doing. We should be provoking. And we should consider... How can I do that? I should consider other people. Yes, my speech should be provoking. My speech should be provoking in such a way that it encourages you to have a more close relationship with God than you did three minutes ago. There should be a provocation. And then verse 25, he says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another the much more as you see the day approaching. You can't do that if you're not together at all. I've had so many discussions and dare I say sometimes arguments with people about the importance of church. And they're like, well, the church is in a building. No, it's not. I get it. But it doesn't mean that everybody's on their own and everybody's a lone wolf to go worship however they want to go worship. We come together endeavoring in the unity of that spirit, the bond, if you will. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And he says, don't forsake that. Don't forsake that. You know what? That's why I love coming to church. That's why I love being here. Look, I grew up in in a situation where everybody flat out said, you've got to be in church anytime the doors are open. But they were saying it in such a way that it was a legalistic thing. Because somehow, some way, it was going to make you a better Christian. If you were in church every single day, you were going to be a better Christian. And then I realized it's not about me being a better Christian. I come to church for someone else. I come to church for others. Why? Because he says, I'm going to consider others. I'm going to do it in such a way that, as he says here, but exhorting one another. That's the purpose of assembling. 
is to exhort one another. And people can't do that if they're not there. So as we begin to see all of these things coming together, God is saying, this is the importance of why I have other believers in your life. This is why it becomes important to seek that help. To seek godly counsel. To seek things from the word of God. That becomes an important part. I want you to go back over to the book of Romans in chapter um, chapter 13 this time. I want to point out a couple other things here. So Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, we saw over there about being kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. And in the next chapter... In chapter 13, he says in verse 10, Love worketh no ill towards his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now sometimes people are so dead set on keeping certain elements of things that they overlook the most important part. The Pharisees, man, they were, what were they? They were so committed to keeping every aspect of the law, they would tithe of their mint and their anise and their seeds and all of those things, sitting there counting each mint leaf and then saying, nine for me, one for God, nine for me, one for God, nine for me, one for God. And he said they looked over the weightier things of judgment and so many times in the Christian life, people will have these arbitrary rules that they think are going to help them grow, but they don't realize that there is other people involved in your Christian life. Let's not kid ourselves. Let's not deceive ourselves. We have an impact in other Christians' lives. How you behave is going to have an impact in other Christians' lives. So what does he say there? Very clearly, he says, Love worketh no ill uh, to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And what was it that God said when when Jesus Christ was asked, What's the greatest commandment? And he said, the first is what? Love. Love the Lord thy God with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, all the strength, right? And then he says, and the second is like un, do it. Love thy neighbor, love, love. And we begin to realize what that means. Because love is not selfish. Love is not self-centered. We find that God very clearly has this design when it comes with other believers. Turn to chapter 15 of the book of Romans. Chapter 15. I want you to see here as he's closing out the the book and he's getting ready to go into the last 
if you will, um, closing uh, um, uh, salutations in uh, in chapter 15 and in verse 30, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Here he is, he's earnestly asking them, not for his sake, not so that he would benefit necessarily, but he says, for Lord Jesus Christ's sake, for him, for him, the one that died on the cross, the one that rose again. And for the love of the Spirit. And I'll tell you this. There really needs to be a love for the Spirit. The Spirit's got a very interesting job. He comforts. Well, we love that. He teaches us. Uh, Sometimes we love that. Teaches us truth. Sometimes we don't like to hear the truth. And he convicts. I dare say we gotta love conviction. We gotta love conviction. Because that becomes a very key important part of the correction process. But here he says, this is what I want you to do. Because you want to do it for Jesus, and because you love the Spirit, I want you to pray. I want you to strive together with me in prayer. Strive together with me in prayer. We should have some, if you will, singular prayer. We should be praying for one another. We should concern ourselves with each other. We should be praying for help and assistance and guidance and direction, not just for us, but for everybody that's in this church, each individual. It's a necessary part of what we do. Now, I want to make mention, you know, and I just want to very briefly talk about this. Very briefly talk about this. Because we're going to continue it next week. But here we're talking about getting that victory. We're talking about, you know, how we do that with the equipped saints and all of those things. And I want us to think about something. I mentioned the word conviction with the work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot have correction without conviction. From a spiritual perspective, we see how the Lord guides us into the corrective process. Meaning, if there's something that we find in our lives that God shows us, that the Holy Spirit reveals to us, and says, hey, you know what? That's a big fat mess. How about we clean that up? 
there's a process. There's a way that, 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 that happens. It involves repentance. It involves restoration. It involves uh, rebuke. It involves all of these things. And one of the key things that is necessary there is conviction. And I dare say that when conviction comes, it shows where we were defeated. I just ask for a rhetorical question. Don't, don't, don't necessarily raise your hand. But how many of us have ever had a defeated moment in our Christian life? And I dare say that every last one of us can probably think of one situation or more that we've had a defeated moment in our Christian life. What was the purpose for that defeat? What are you doing with it? Are you letting God use it to teach you and to correct you so you don't do it again? Or are you going to fall into the world's mentality of men? What we learn from history is that men don't learn from history. The Bible says the righteous man falleth seven times. But what does he do? Rises yet again. Even when we fail, we can still see victory if we do it God's way. If we do it God's way. And I just want us to think about that as we enter into this next week. Because we're going to talk about the corrective process. We're going to talk about what happens when things get defeated. And look, we know people get defeated. David, Solomon, Peter... Moses, Abraham, the list goes on. What did they learn? David made some pretty big colossal mistakes. But he didn't make the same ones over and over again. So we'll take a look at that, Lord willing, next week. But let's go ahead and be dismissed with a word of prayer. And then we'll be getting ready for our 11 o'clock service. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for this time. Thank you again for what you've given to us from your word. I pray, Lord, as we've heard these things and looked at these things from Scripture, that, Lord, you would just give us that instruction that, Lord, we would be encouraging, exhorting, and edifying one another daily. We would be in prayer, striving together in prayer one for another. And that, Lord, we would just desire to be together in love, that we would provoke each other unto that love of you and for those things that would be good works according to you. Again, Lord, I pray you'd be with us for the 11 o'clock hour. And these things I ask in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.